This week on Tech Radio, the world's best AI explainer. Hi, I'm Artemis. I am a computer-generated AI voice, and you're listening to Tech Radio. Every week online and on air with RT Radio, we bring you the very latest in tech. You're welcome to episode 979, where it's summer, allegedly. So this week, we're taking you to summer school for an eye-opener on what AI is and how it actually works. We'll also hear how they're redefining intelligence, but not enough to overtake the human mind just yet. This is Tech Radio with Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson. Since ChatGPT burst into the mainstream late last year, we have been constantly covering how AI is going to shape our futures here on Tech Radio. Recently, one of our sister science podcasts, Adapt Radio, had an amazing chat with two world experts in the area who brilliantly explained AI and large language models from the ground up. They are Professor Vincent Wade, who works with computer science and artificial intelligence at Trinity College Dublin, and Professor John Kelleher, who is Professor of Computer Science at Maynooth University. They spoke with journalist and Adapt Radio presenter Claire O'Connell, who began asking them what exactly is a large language model. So a language model is technically a, a probability distribution over strings in a language. Okay. So what that means is that if you give this, this model a sequence of words, it can tell you, returns to you a probability that that sequence of words belongs to this language, okay? So if you have a language model of English, you can, it can look at a, a, a sentence and give you back a probability that this set this of words came from an English sentence, okay? That's why it's called a language model. The way they're created is actually we train a neural network to, uh, we show it a sequence of lots and lots of sentences from a given language, in these cases, we're often talking about English, but there's multilingual language models, and it doesn't even have to be human language. It could be a programming language or it could be a formal language. But you show it lots of strings from a language, and you train the model to predict the next word in each sentence. So you might, you know, a training process for this model might be, you say, you give it the, a man walked into a bar, and you ask the language model to guess what's the next word in the sentence you're showing it, Okay. And you keep doing that. You keep showing it sentences and, you, and it guesses the next word. You show it that word and, and you update its errors. So when you give it a string um, and you ask it to generate the next word, what it actually gives you back is a probability distribution over the set of words that it knows of what, which of these words is most likely to be the next word in a language in that sentence. Okay? And a really good language model is good at guessing the next, next words in sentences. Um, now, we can train it differently. It doesn't necessarily have to be the last word in a sentence that it's predicting. You could give it a sentence. I'm sure in, in school we've all done closed tests where, you know, you're given a sentence with some missing words in the middle of it and you have to guess the middle, missing words. Um, maybe you're given a list of other words that you have to put in. So we can train it that way as well. Um, and so by training it to generate the probabilities for what, miss, what are the missing words or the next words in a sentence, it actually learns to generate probabilities over entire strings. There's a thing called the chain rule we can use to do that. So that's why they're called a language model, because what they've learned is a model of the likelihood of a string being a part of a sentence. It's just hearing you describe it that way, I'm reminded of the old game show Blankety Blank. 
And it's like a giant version of blankety blank <laughs> with billions of inputs. And in terms of these, these language models and generative AI, I mean, what's so different about what we had f- between them and what we had before? Is it scale or is there something fundamentally different about the way that the AI is trained or the data sets that are being used? I think I'll, I'll start with that and then John, if you want to add in. I think the, the first thing is because of the size of them, it creates a phenomenon where the actual generated text is actually quite eloquent. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, the big discussion at the moment is ChatGPT, but you've got to remember that ChatGPT is just one example of a whole family of large language models that are beginning to, to emerge. And I think what's, what, what's been really interesting is that the, the quality of the and the eloquence of the uh, language being generated is very convincing. Even when it's saying something completely wrong, it says it with such conviction <laughs> and such eloquence. So, so I, I think the, the very first thing is, is the, the step change in terms of the quality of the actual language being generated. Again, yeah, I'll say that there are a number of people, creative writers and so forth, who would turn around and say, well, it's not that great, but actually compared to what had been before, it's a significant step change. Uh, the second thing is that because of the, as John was explaining, because of the large amount of text that has been processed, I feel like put into the memory, the uh, actual number of facts that the um, large language model can produce seems to be quite large. So you're able to get not what, what seems quite comprehensive answers. Okay. Now, what we reach at this stage, though, is where language models begin to show their origin, but also show their vulnerability in the sense that because, as John said, what they're doing is just predicting the next word and creating text, they don't know what they're saying is right or wrong. They don't have facts that we would understand as facts. So what they do is they generate a language and the language, because the probability of the words, is reasonably accurate. The problem is that sometimes it gets it wrong and gets it really sometimes funnily wrong and sometimes disastrously wrong. And that's what we call hallucination. And it's where you have in this generative text, this, you know, ask for a bio of somebody and it, will, it all seem really nice. And all of a sudden start talking about things that the person never did or, or weren't involved with and so forth. And we've seen you know, newspaper articles about this where somebody was, somebody, a politician in Australia was was claimed that he was an ex-convict and of course he wasn't and he wanted to sue ChatGPT and so forth. That sort of hallucination happens because of this fact that it's generating based on probability. It seems to be a really good story. It seems perfectly reasonable. Uh, so it's, it's, it's generating that text. But it doesn't have the fact checking behind it to see whether or not any of those facts are correct. So from, from one's perspective, the reason why the, 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 there's such uh, interest now is that the quality of the language and apparent quality of the content. The downside is that um, there needs to be a lot more checks and balances. Um, and the uh, certainly you know, as chatbots that are using these language models evolve, they're going to be using multiple different techniques to try and make them more accurate. John, do you want to add to that? Yeah, well, one I just reiterate, I think you've really nailed it there, Vidian, that I think the most important step change is exactly that notion that the fluency has come, makes them much more believable in their output and that that's the whole implication on the social systems that are really important with the hallucinations. 
Um, I guess the other thing that I would add then is also their adaptability. So the we seem to, that it opens up the ability for people who may not be able to program, you know, in a structured language to write out what they want, you know, to give instructions um, to in order to this model because they seem to be quite good at interpreting instructions to an extent. Um, so, for, so for example, you can... It can, you can ask it to summarize text and ask it, okay, please take this text and summarize it for me and extract, you know, the, um, the value of this. Or, you know, you can describe, you know, things that you want extracted from the text and give it back to me in this format, you know. And it's that, uh, that kind of ability to get this model to adapt um, to your needs by you expressing them in English. And that's that's why there's this proliferation of all of these top 20, top 30 prompts, you know, and why there's so much work for, you know, for people to to learn about how to do prompt engineering, as we call it now. Um, so there is a, a potential for, um, I don't want to put it too, I don't want to overstate it, but there's an opening up of the potential for people to, uh, to use it, that um, the, the barrier to use has dropped significantly because of uh, some of the APIs that have been put in place and the skin, the, the interface that we put in place, but also because the way we ask and request information from this tool or these tools is much closer to how we talk to each other. You know, again, though the problem is that naturalness of interaction, and this would be thing something that Vinny and his group know much better than I would. But when you have that naturalness of interaction and the fluency of the responses without necessarily the grounding in the world so that the hallucinations can happen. There's a, there's a, there's, you know, there'd be dragons there. We have to be careful where we end up with that. Um, but the interactions and fluency, uh, I think, are the key changing factors for us in this technology. Absolutely. That fluency, it really does build a sense of almost trust and engagement, doesn't it? When you're using it, I've, I've, I found that myself. But also, as you mentioned, the prompts are so important. You need to put in exactly you need to ask questions in exactly the right way and then you get the smooth talking back but then you need to check the facts that the smooth talker was telling you just on that uh, it's it's, you're you're, you're absolutely right the one of the things that has differentiated these systems that are built on large language models is the fact that we can prompt in so many different ways and get the content back in so many different ways what's happened with that means that it's now being used in so many different sectors whether I, i talked about education and law and uh, customer uh, support, even health. You know, there's, there's so many different applications because of the fact that there's this flexibility and adaptability, as John was saying, in terms of how you can ask for the information, how you can get it to send things back to you. So, so the, from a from a, um, a utility perspective, these things are are incredibly powerful. But from a, a human perspective, and this is what you were getting at, from a human perspective. The only thing we ever really talk to and talks back to us are humans. And whether we like it or not, our brains are trained that way. So the result is when we begin to talk to a chatbot in this form, and it is being eloquent back to us, we begin to perceive it as having a personality or as having... Now, it's called anthropomorphism. And and we do it all the time. I mean, how many people have called a car Betty or Johnny or whatever it is? You know, but we know it's not real. The difference is with a, a chatbot that's, this, that's potentially this eloquent, people can begin to get confused and treat it as inverted commas, a friend or something like that. And that's not what it is. It is just a program 
And it is just a program which generates based on probability on the language, not even fact. So once you're aware that this is just an AI and you, you, you keep that in the back of your mind, you can then begin to use it in a way that is much more where you're in control. It's not telling you what to do. You're able to fact check. You're able to, 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 to utilize it in a much better way. And we're seeing that now where, you know, I'm talking to lawyers, I'm talking to teachers, I'm talking to right across the board where people are using ChatGTP or other generative language because I said there are much more uh, language models coming out. And they're able to check it. They're able to be in control of it, form the way the sentence want, and then pull it and then add it to it themselves rather than just kind of take it as 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 gospel as the truth because that would that is not what we want um, and that is not the kind of behavior that you really want people who are using these kind of language models because they do hallucinate they do get things wrong and they have no sense of right and wrong whether uh, morally or else they will not make moral decisions at all they're literally just language generators it's very clever ones very eloquent ones with access to lots of content around the world but that's what they are Given that this is uh, a generator that parses and structures information, but then we need to be very careful about the, the factual elements of it, that has huge implications in education, Vinny, and we've heard a lot about that in recent months. So what are your perspectives on how these generative AIs could be a positive learning experience for students and educators? Sure. I, I think that it comes down to understanding how they work and therefore being able to use them properly. You know, I, I have heard comparisons of it's like a calculator for maths in the sense that, you know, if you, we used to do a maths in our head in terms of uh, numeric numbering and so forth but uh, and operations, but now we, we use a calculator. It's not quite the same because calculators don't really make mathematical errors when you're multiplying and dividing, whereas, you know, the, the, the generative model and large language models will, okay? So from our perspective, it's a tool that can be used, but you've got to use it as a tool, not as an answer generator. So the first hype that came through was, you know, oh, students are just going to put in their question, get ChatGPT or whatever the the language model is uh, to generate a response, cut and paste, thank you very much. And when that happens, it's usually carnage because the results um, are very variable uh, depending on, as you pointed out, how accurate your prompt was uh, in terms of what you get back, but also in terms of, of, of the hallucination effect. So from an education perspective, what we're now trying to say to people is it's a tool, use it as a tool, but don't just, if you like, cut and paste from the results because that's not going to help you. It's, 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 it's ultimately, it will, cause, it will cause you problems. Um, in education, we're seeing it, uh, certainly students are using it as an extra aid to um, find out more information, to get something explained to them more easily, or, you know, there, it's available 24-7. You're not always able to ask the teacher. or whatever. So you can use it that way, but you do have to double check to make sure that some of the things it's saying is correct. We're also seeing it in terms of teachers. Teachers are beginning to use it as well. Um, one of the examples I, I've seen is beginning to generate lesson plans for a particular topic. So it might suggest different ways of laying out. And again, 
the teacher being an expert in the can look at that and say, oh, that's a really good suggestion, but I'd actually do it this way. But actually, that's useful to get started. So it's almost like a productivity tool. They can get to what they want to faster and they get a kind of a, a support to get started. Um, we're seeing it in uh, aspects where if something was trying to explain something, it might generate a number of different explanations and the teacher then could actually use different parts of different explanations to put together the explanation that they want to use for, the, for their particular children. And what now we're also beginning to see where they're saying, well, actually, I have a class of 30. I've been handing out the same solutions, whereas actually I know they're all individuals. I know they're all at different levels. So I can use this to actually generate individual responses. I can tailor them for them, and then I can give them a lesson plan that's more suitable for them or, and solutions that more explain, explains better to them. So it actually can be a very, very powerful tool. But I, I use this phrase, AI aware. Again, if they are AI aware, they understand how to use the tool, and they can understand how best to utilize it without the pitfalls. But it's like everything else. If you just use it as a blind tool, there will be problems, um, and that's guaranteed. So, f from my perspective, I see it as as a a very um, important aid. Now, for the other part, just just to cover it, uh, is assessment. So, if you're asking students to do particular work, and they have access to ChatGPT or other um, generative uh, models, what we now ask for them to do is actually state where they used it size it so that you know it becomes more transparent just because as you would use a book or if you use a piece of uh, paper or whatever it might be or but if you're given that answer you can say in this this from ChatGPT, and this is why i used it in this so actually it, it becomes part of a transparent process i think where where it's being used you know cloaked as the person, the thing generating my answer. That's when, again, when, when things happen. Also, we're seeing now that um, in, in, with assessment, it's not enough to submit the assessment, but then you, what you may be asked to is asked to, to do some verbals on it and, or do, do some presentation on it, in which case that's not going to, ChatGPT isn't going to help you, but to really understand what you have what to you know submitted. what you're talking about, exactly. Exactly. So there are different, you know, and people are adapting their assessments in that way. But again, it, it, is, it is a really positive tool if used in the right way. I remember when people thought that using Google was cheating because it found the documents, you know, as if somehow finding the documents was a really good uh, uh, information retrieval skill. You know, so, so, so I think that as we, as, as tools begin to allow us to delve into the language within documents and the content within documents and manipulate it in these kind of very easy to use ways, I think that we should be embracing that affordance but also encouraging the skills to use it properly and um, in the appropriate context. So it's a bit like uh, you mentioned Google or search engines. It's a little bit like the way search engines meant we no longer had to go to the library and photocopy things out of books that we wanted to study. We could search for everything online. This is another step where we can use this online tool to do the heavy lifting on gathering some of that information together, but then it's up to the human to critique it, to cite it, to make sense of it, to spot the hallucinations. That's so that word, hallucinations. In terms of, you know, we've talked about being AI aware and the AI is not human aware. Do you think that in the future, are we likely to see a truly 
authentic human AI conversation between a human and an AI agent, considering those challenges. Do you think we'll get there? Is that a base? Is that assuming that we can create a generally intelligent AI? I think it's just asking, will we ever get beyond this point where it's a language generator rather than something that understands context and, and what the human is actually asking? So I, I, there's two things that come to mind for me there. One is I've certainly got beyond decide, forecasting what's going to happen because every time I, I make it, you know, there's one way to make yourself look like look like a fool is to say, well, this definitely isn't going to happen. In the next, you know, and then because things are rapidly changing so much. But that aside, the uh, I think that question of understanding is really challenging. You know, um, there's questions, uh, there's a very interesting discussion in the literature at the moment about whether the, the, sometimes these are talk called talking parrots, you know, they're just generators and they've no real grounding because, you know, there's some arguments that to say to really understand the world, you need to have a body, you need to have perceptions, you need to have experiences, you need to understand what society is, you know, to understand what a hammer is, you need to have a body that lives in a house because you know that you need a hammer to build a house, you know, there's purposes and intentions. So that's, there's one whole debate there that goes right back to, I can think of books by Dreyfus, Hubert Dreyfus, um, on what computers can't do and what computers still can't do, going right back to the 70s and 80s. And then there's another side of that discourse, which is talking about the fact that, at least to an extent, there is a correspondence between the world and the language we use, you know, because that's, language wouldn't be useful for us as humans unless there was such a correspondence. And that these language models, while they don't necessarily have the potential to ground their symbols uh, or their representations of symbols, they're sub-symbolic in their representations, but for this discussion have a, a symbolic assumptions, to ground their their representations within perceptions and, and uh, beliefs, they still can tap into the correlations and correspondence between language and the world. I, th I think for that, for you end up there is, hey, we mightn't get the full way, but we might get beyond where we are now. You know, I have to say for myself, I have been really surprised by what I've seen for the progress in the last five years. You know, I have to honestly put my hand up and say, I didn't expect us to get to where we are this quickly. You know, if you'd asked me five years ago, is this going to happen? And I was working on language models five years ago. I was working on language models 10 years ago, you know. I'm somewhat shocked that language models, you know, there's a, there's a strange thing that sometimes happens for academics when you're working in this area that nobody's paying a whole lot of attention to. And then it suddenly gets a spotlight shone onto us. Now, nothing necessarily to do with my particular work in the area, but, you know, I've been in that, that space. Um, so I'm just saying, for, even for somebody who's working on large language models and taught them fascinating, you know, five, ten years ago, or language models, uh, they weren't this big ten years ago. I didn't see this happening. So... I think it's very hard to judge the, the future in that regard. One thing I would add, though, is there has been a lot of discourse around, you know, existential threats from AI. And I, I would just park that. I don't necessarily see that uh, happening in the near future. And I think it's important for us to, to park that because sometimes when the discussion is framed about is, is this AI system going to wipe us out, it ignores the problems that AI are already causing. You know, so I wouldn't so much worry about some notion of artificial intelligence escaping, you know, and, and artificial intelligence somehow deciding to wipe out humanity. 
What I would be worried about is what's already happening in terms of AI being an accelerator for people who want to generate disinformation, misinformation, you know, uh, the impacts of these types of technologies on, on democracy, you know. Uh, those are the challenges I'd focus on um, uh, at the moment. If we were, I know it's, it's slightly to the side of the question there, but that would be for right focus going forward. Sorry, Vinny, do you want to go? Yeah, just, just to add, just on the on the conversation side, I think that when you look at a transcript of a conversation between, between a human and and a, and something like these large with these large generative models, some of them became quite convincing, and you may not realize whether or not which was the, the human and which was the uh, the chatbot. Um, but remember that the human, without realizing it, is adapting because it's typing or what it's it's talking. It, it, it's saying things a little bit more clearly. It doesn't have quite the same expectation. So you got to understand that that humans are probably the most adaptable beings uh, around. So so they they naturally adapt to this. The, the second thing is, and this always comes as a bit of a shock. Only thirty percent of the signals in a conversation are language based. In, the, all the other ones are to do with tone, prosody, uh, facial expression, gesture, uh, all of those things which, as humans, we naturally do. We, we've been trained from right the beginning uh, of our birth and up looking for nods, looking for, okay, am I boring you? <laughs> you know, these kind of things. It's, you know, it's just, it's just pushing uh, content into a black hole. Um, so, you know, that sort of what we call multimodal interaction is, you know, still hasn't been integrated and then there's research in that side of things. So in terms of, of complete naturalness, no, we're not there yet. Um, in terms of how we're taking a significant step forward in the last three or four years, yes. Uh, is it very convincing? It can be very convincing. And then what we're saying is, yes, but we also have to aware this is just a program. John, yeah? If I, if I could come back in here, I think another angle to think about here is, so I've been, I've been teaching artificial intelligence for over 20 years now, and I've just thought to myself, the introductory chapter of all of the artificial intelligence textbooks that I've been using during that period, they all have to be rewritten now because of this. Because in nearly every one of those chapters, they start off by trying to define what intelligence is. And that discussion typically ends up with, a at least at some point, with a discussion around the Turing test and the imitation game. Uh, the idea of, you know, that um, since we can't see inside the AI and we can't define intelligence ourselves, a kind of a functional definition of something, if something can be behave as if it's intelligent and if a human perceives something as intelligent, then it can claim intelligence. You know, that's kind of a very uh, um, an abstract version or definition of what Turing, the Turing test or the imitation game set out. And just going to, to Vinny's point there that some of these transcripts, you know, these things might have at least convinced some people that they are intelligent, you know. And uh, so for that reason, if you're right, if you're deciding to write a textbook on artificial intelligence, your chapter one has now changed <laughs> fundamentally. You know that uh, you can no longer, you know, ten years ago you might have said uh, there'd be a there'd be a paragraph in there going, you know, under this definition, there's competitions being run, but no one ever, no systems ever really done it. You know, one or two have got it by by chance, but really this is a bit of the way off. And now it's much more like, well, um, this fundamental 
tenet of the field of AI, you know, this kind of seminal piece of work by Alan Turing, you know, and the imitation game, we have to reflect a bit more on it, you know, in the context of large language models. So at least within that discipline, the definition of intelligence has, uh, has to be reassessed um, for, for that perspective. So It's very exciting to be living through a time of such rapid change, but I suppose we do need to be careful as well. Um, and obviously, any chat AI is going to be very heavily influenced by the data set on which it trains. So as consumers... Do we need to know about what those data sets are? Our own data could be used for those data sets. Is, is that a possibility? Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, so, so I'll take that one. So um, absolutely, the, the very first thing is, based on our definition of how language model is created, it's completely influenced by the content that it's analysed or the, the data that it's fed, if you like. And if that has bias in it, then the, the resultant language model will have that same bias. Okay, That's why there's so much work that goes on in terms of what they call curating the content to try and remove or at least balance the data. But if it's not balanced, then absolutely. And to be honest with you, the, the part of the reason why they think that it, well, it's, it could be balanced is because if they take such a large range of data, that somehow it would all balance out. But we also know that that's not necessarily true. So... It, it is actually important. We know what the um, the, the the data that the um, particular AI ha has been based on because it it can and there's been lots of examples. I won't go through them all, but lots of examples of, of chatbots which were released, which all of a sudden started ex ex exhibiting significant bias and had to be shut down straight away and, and so forth. So you know th this this is a real issue. So we we do have to know that. Um, and that means that there has to be transparency in terms of, of, of what it's been trained on and what it is. Um, the other thing that people have to understand is that the language models that they've produced are not necessarily deterministic. So even the people who wrote those programs for the language models and who run the data are surprised with some of the results that it produces. Um, we can all remember that Lambda's unveiling in Google um, got a few things wrong that surprised the, the, the CEO. So, I mean, it, it, it certainly can happen. Um, so we do have to be careful of, 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 of bias. Um, the other thing that we have to be careful of is, we talked a little bit earlier about prompts. This is how you ask the uh, language model to, to, to give you some, uh, some content or give you some uh, uh, results. But of course, frequently in those prompts, you might give away information. And we've got to be very careful what you, information you give in to the, um, the, the conversational AI. Because, you know, under GDPR, you've got to be very careful what information, personal information you're divulging, whether it's yours or not, whether it's your companies and so forth. So just, again, it, it, the, the affordance of the, of the language model is such that you're tempted to just give it information and then have it process it or, or, or give you as sort of a narrative around it. But of course, you've got to be very careful on that because it, you, the GDPR rules are that you're not allowed to do that if you don't have permission to do that uh, and if it, or if it's someone else's data or if it's someone else's personal data and so forth. Um, and that's where, if you like, the governance of AI is beginning to come into play. 
GDPR is probably the first legislation that we have, which is very much around protecting the individual and protecting the, the, the data. But as these are data-driven programs, then actually having laws around what data they're allowed have and what data they're, they're given and where it's stored and so forth is the first line of, uh, uh, of appropriate regulation. The next line will be common for Europe with the AI regulations, which are due the end of 2024, which is really kind of looking at the risk factors in terms of what are you asking the artificial intelligence to do? Is it low risk, medium risk, or high risk? If it's high risk, then you know, there's, there's much more regulation in place. It also looks in terms of what sectors you're in. So if you're in the healthcare sector, then you're going to be, if, if the chatbot say talking about health, then you'll be regulated as a lot more stringent controls around that than if you're just trying to answer answer a geography question or something like that. So again, you know, there, there is this um, legislation that will come through. There's a lot of discussion at the moment. The, the, the legislation is, 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 is not complete. There's lots of discussion about how best to complete it and so forth. But it is definitely vital. And the, the other part is that uh, when it comes to, to, to this is that Different parts of the world are in different different uh, journeys or, or or different levels of sophistication. So Europe will have some robust, uh, reasonable uh, AI legislation over the next couple of years, but it's not clear that where the US will be. I understand Japan has recently decided that well, actually there is no copyright on anything produced by uh, artificial intelligence and AI chat uh, uh, chatbots, which you know if you like, makes it the Wild West. Um, and so different countries are handling in different ways. I think that Europe is ahead of the game uh, in terms of protecting its people, in terms of, of pr uh, protecting the um, the usage and so forth. And that, I think, is a good thing. Um, I'm, and I've, I'm, I remember the all the, the uh, discussion around uh, GDPR back in 2014-15, and everyone said it wouldn't work. Everyone said it wasn't a good idea. Was, we didn't want this. And now people don't really you know, have that. In fact, GDPR or, or versions of GDPR have been accepted all over the world as a good way of protecting. So I think that we are in this situation. I, I think a, a, a usual example I'd say is it's a bit like the Wild West in the US. You know, We have a sheriff. We have some laws, but we still don't have the full protection in there yet. And and we need that. Uh, there needs to be further uh, regulation. And regulation does not necessarily impinge on innovation, but it does produce safety. Absolutely. And for, for many for many commercial entities, doing things in a safe and ethical way is going to be an advantage in the marketplace because people will want that, I assume. I, I would say rather deal with an organisation that's looking after the provenance of the data and, and the outputs, etc. Um, just finally, you are both researchers in ADAPT. Can I ask each of you from a personal perspective, what are you most excited about from a research perspective in this area of generative AI? John, do you want to go first? Well, I think the thing is that uh, when you ask a researcher what are they most excited about, that's often the problems, you know, So the because the, they're the things we can work to try and fix, you know, so... I have my concerns, but actually the things I'm excited about are trying to address the problems of things like hallucination. You know, how do we reduce that? Uh, of trying to uh, develop tools that help to counteract things like misinformation and disinformation. Of 
working with colleagues in the ADAPT Center um, who are engaged with stakeholders and with policy development to support their work on trying to develop good data governance strategies and good policy around the use and deployment and in the education sector, you know. So that's that's what I'm really excited about is there's a range. Another area, I suppose a specific thing that refers to these things have gotten big, you know, they are large. As a, I do have like as a kind of abstract scientific question, there's one of, you know, there's a question of is bigger different? And there seems to be some evidence here that scaling does make a difference, but uh, that's, that's a kind of there's, some, there's something to be explored there. It's kind of a bit different. A lot of science is a lot of uh, STEM, at least, is often taking a different view to understand the whole. We understand the parts rather than making things bigger, and this is a kind of slightly different th- work. So, from a scientific perspective, there's some interesting things about scaling, scaling laws, to look at those and what's happening there. And then there's also a, a factor of one of the things I'm, I'd be concerned with when we have very large models that require huge amounts of data and large computing is that that can restrict the voices that get heard within the research community because it gives people research, it puts researchers who don't have access to a huge computer and massive data at a disadvantage. And they could be very talented researchers with lots of, you know, with really good ideas and other perspectives and alternatives perspectives. Um, so some of the research that's happening there around thinking about how can we efficiently from a computational perspective, train and adapt these models and do re- research on these models computationally efficiently. I, I'm, I'm really excited about supporting that work and getting involved in it, both because it will make this type of uh, these types of tools more sustainable in the long run, uh, but uh, more importantly, it will open up the discourse within the AI research community to a broader set of academics and a broader set of voices. So I think those would be some of the areas. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. In that in that team science approach, it's so important to be inclusive rather than everybody who was doing doing this stuff before just as more of it and, and other people get, get excluded. Vinny, what's burning bright for you at the moment? So my area is all around personalization. I, I, I'm very aware of, uh, in education, I'm very aware of the fact that, you know, not everybody learns the same way. Everybody has their, their own way of, of maximizing their enjoyment of learning and in their uh, efficiency and effectiveness of their learning. So what, what I have been, been focusing on for a number of years really is, is looking at how it can use personalization and artificial intelligence to really empower the uh, learning for everybody individually. And with language models, large language models, that provides me with an extra tool now that I can actually utilize but I think that the, the, the key thing here is really to empower individuals and to shape AI to suit the human rather than sometimes what we do is we, AI is very good at optimization. So therefore, we just get AI to get more optimization, optimize the workforce or worse, automate. And, and my, from my, my real interest is, is always been how can AI empower people, genuinely empower people and put people in control of the technology so that they can do whatever they want to do more easily, but also in, in, for education purposes, learn much more easily and be supported so that you have a 24-7 support as distinct from, you know, the amount of support that we can do, put into the educational system, which, which, which is not, not, not enough. And indeed, from a societal perspective, that's going to be the biggest um, impact on individuals because, you know, I think that the the worst situations is when we don't support 
um, our individuals within our within our society in terms of learning and in terms of understanding and in terms of really perceiving what's going on. So for me, th- this is just an, another tool now that I, 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 I can use in that armory and a combine it with other aspects of AI to be able to 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 really address those problems. Um, and, and I think that as the world gets more and more complex, we need more and more of these supports. And that was Claire O'Connell chatting with Vincent Wade from Trinity College Dublin and John Kelleher from Maynooth University. If you'd like to hear more about AI and artificial intelligence, especially in Ireland, we highly recommend following the Adapt Radio podcast. Just search your podcast player for Adapt Radio or, of course, the link will be in the show notes on your podcast player right now. This is Tech Radio. That's it for our show this week. We'll be back again next Friday on RTE Radio 1 Extra. And of course, you can get new episodes automatically by clicking follow on your podcast player. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, and from Niall Kitsum, enjoy the rest of summer. Stay dry. Tech Radio is produced by DustPod.io. From me, Artemis, goodbye. Goodbye.